0: Chapter Eleven, of Italian Life and Legends, by Anna Cora Mawet Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven, Overflow of the Arno, Artist, and the Mad Singer. In another article, we make a brief allusion to the last occasion in which Piccolomini was conjured out of her retirement to delight the ears of Florence and aid the sufferers from the inundation. It was in November 1864 that the capricious little Arno, which is always playing fantastic tricks before high heaven, spread dismay through the startled city by one of its maddest pranks the beauty of this slender stream which pierces the heart of florence has been sung by poets and lauded by travellers mrs browning as she views it from the lovely heights of the belsguardo speaks of the river trailing like a silver cord again looking from her casa greedy windows she says i can but muse upon the shore of the golden Arno as it shoots away through Florence's heart beneath her bridges fore, bent bridges seeming to strain off like bows and tremble while the arrowing undertide shoots on and cleaves the marble as it goes and strikes up palace walls on either side. Byron, too, speaks of the Arno's silver sheen, We have seen the Arno justify the poetic simile of a silver cord, when its waters were clear and the full moon seemed melted in the gently flowing stream. And we have seen the chameleon-like Arno look like a golden cord in the noonday sun, or when it reflected countless lights flashing along its banks during the city's illumination for some grand festa. And we have often seen this same changeful Arno degraded into a narrow, reddish, and decidedly muddy current, the very opposite of silver, golden, or picturesque. And not unfrequently we have beheld its waters almost entirely vanish, and the bright-eyed Italian gamins gamble in its shallow bed. Twice within three years the Arno has suddenly swelled and overflowed its banks, The last inundation, that of November 1864, was the most serious that has occurred during the last twenty years. The little circle, of which we formed a part, was residing, at the time, in the Via de Bardi, a street which Miss Evans has rendered famous by making it the home of her noble Romola. We chanced to be located very near where Romola is supposed to have lived, and within view of the hill where tessa tended her hidden babes and watched for her false-hearted tito this via de badi was one of the streets metamorphosed into a river by the inundation it was on a quiet sunday morning that we were startled by the time that the river had suddenly risen and was overflowing its banks an artist friend who had crossed the nearest bridge an hour before without anticipating any danger was paying us a visit he started up in dismay fearing that he might be cut off from his home seized his hat and hastily departed we could well imagine there was some cause for his alarm when we saw him carried across the garden upon the back of a man who waded knee-deep through the water half an hour later in rushed another friend who had seen from his villa on the bellesquardo heights the swollen river and our perilous situation should the overflow be serious he came with characteristic hospitality to urge us to take flight to his bellesquardo home before we became prisoners We could none believe that the tiny, harmless-looking stream, which we were accustomed to regard as silver, or golden, or muddy cord, could work any decided mischief, and refuse the kind offer. Our friend hurried away, and as we watched his departure, we found that the water had risen too high for him to be borne out upon a man's back he was compelled to call in the assistance of a donkey and made his way through the garden seated in a rude barraccio drawn by a donkey whose legs were completely hidden by the reddish current our situation began to look a little threatening the wisdom of following the undignified example of our friend and making our escape seated on the floor of a furniture wagon and dragged by an ignoble donkey was discussed we concluded to wait a few hours longer before the time appointed for our final decision arrived the power to choose was taken from us the kitchen and billiard-room were under water the concierge had locked the massive entrance portals of the palace and fled The water had risen above their bolts and locks, above the windows of the piano terrena, ground floor, and was approaching those of the intrasol. We had watched it ascend the whole first flight of stairs leading to our apartments, and it had gained the first step of the last flight. The street had been suddenly transformed into a river. Boats sent by the authorities for the relief of the poor were passing rapidly up and down articles of furniture beds women and children were being lifted out of the windows of the lower stories and away as for us the windows of our entresol were strongly gated and those of the apartments we occupied on the floor above were too distant for the boats for escape to be possible we were literally water-bound prisoners soon came a report that the authorities feared the parapets of the river would give away the destruction must then be terrible incalculable many houses must inevitably be swept away and numerous lives sacrificed the excitement throughout the streets in peril may be better conceived than described though the month was november every window was open the whole length of the Via del badi and pale anxious faces peered out watching the rising of the water and now and then a frightened voice cried to the gendarmes in the boats and in piteous tones asked how great was the danger thus passed the day about midnight the waters ceased to rise during the night to our inexpressible relief they gradually subsided the next day however boats still made their way along many of the flooded streets as may be imagined the losses and sufferings of the poor were very great. Florence displayed a charitable munificence and contributions for their aid flowed in almost as rapidly and abundantly as the waters of the Arno when they caused the calamity. Charity, according to her custom in the present day, assumed the pleasant form of public entertainments as a lure. At some of these, stars that had set rose again, among them Piccolomini, shone forth with undiminished radiance we were residing at the time of the inundation at the palazzo sabatier the home of madame unker sabatier one of the greatest celebrities in florence the distinguished german prima donna the contemporary and rival of malabran the palace was built in 1400 and belonged at one time to the bonaparte family It was the residence of the present Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte. It passed from the hands of the Bonapartes into those of the Alamanni, thence to the Pitti family, and from the latter was purchased by Monsieur Sabatier. The principal drawing-room of this palace is certainly one of the most remarkable salons in Florence. Its decorations are singularly beautiful and original the entire wall is covered with a canvas overlaid with gold upon golden ground life-size pictures have been skilfully painted by the eminent french artist bouquet and papitay on one side we have shakespeare shakespeare in his youth by papitay beyond mozart standing before his piano and further on don giovanni with the fair deluded ones and the ghost in the background. These paintings were all executed by Papetet. Next we see Dante, led by the spirit of Virgil, and above these, Francesca de Rimini, born to heaven. This group is by Bonquet. Farther on, we behold Raphael, standing between Menistopheles and Faust, who is embracing Margaret. Then comes Raphael, leaning against an easel, which holds the unfinished picture of Madonna de la Cedula, above a half-nude female figure, either representing fame, or La Fornorina holds a crown over the head of Raphael. One cannot help being struck by the pose of Raphael, which is singularly French. Even his face, though the resemblance to his portrait has been preserved, is Frenchified in a wonderful manner. Next appears Michelangelo, standing between two of his most celebrated statues, conspicuous for their muscular development. Moliere, unfinished, completes the distinguished assemblage. The four last-mentioned groups are by Bonquet who died while he was painting the Molière. It is a singular coincidence that Pepette also died before his work was completed. Monquet left a young daughter who has been lovingly adopted by Madame Sabatier, an enthusiastic admirer of genius. This gifted girl, at an early age, testified that the rich inheritance of her father's talents had descended to her she has now become a highly accomplished artiste and is at this moment completing a painting which will fulfil the one space on the golden ground left vacant by her father's death thus the hand of the daughter replaces and is said to most ably the death-stricken hand of the father the mantelpiece of this artistic drawing-room is particularly worthy of mention it may better be called a monument to fourier than a mantelpiece a monument of white marble executed by the french sculptor Oten. the bust of the great philanthropist fourier looks down upon basel Rileve illustrative of his peculiar views explained by inscriptions in golden letters on either side beneath the mantel shelf a couple of lovely children life-size delight the eyes with their innocent and eloquent beauty monsieur sabatier is a saint simeon and a Fourieriste, an erudite scholar an able writer a painter of acknowledged talent and a most eloquent conversationalist. Madame Sabatier retired from her profession some twenty years ago. An undying passion for her glorious art daily invinces itself in her quick appreciation of youthful talent and her lavish generosity in its cultivation. She devotes the larger portion of her time to training pupils gratis for the opera or concert room especially pupils whose limited means would have forbidden the culture of their gifts, save for her unmeasured liberality. When she has the good fortune to be thrown into contact with a genius of high order, her exertions to promote its development have no bounds. She will take the pupil to her own home, treat her as a daughter, train her with unwearied patience, scarcely eat, scarcely sleep, BECAUSE OF HER GREAT DELIGHT IN HER WORK OF LOVE, AND WHEN SHE HAS FITTED THE neophyte TO ENCOUNTER HER PUBLIC ORDEAL, THE LOVING HANDS OF HER NOBLE INSTRUCTUS SPARE NO PAINS IN SMOOTHING THE ROUGH PATHS WHICH EVEN THE MOST SUCCESSFUL ARTIST MUST TREAD, AND IN PLUGGING AWAY THE THORNS WHICH EVER GROW AMONG THE ROSES WITH WHICH THE WORLD CROWNS ITS FAVORITES. Several of Madame Sabatier's pupils have achieved great triumphs and hold positions of prima donna of the first rank. This generous, large-hearted, highly cultivated artiste, at 60, is full of enthusiasm, vigor, animation, and energy, and retains much of the freshness and buoyancy of her youth she has not the faintest comprehension of that vanity which tempts women of lesser renown to conceal their ages the year of her birth is inscribed beneath her portrait that of her husband is written beneath his though he is twenty years her junior in spite of this disparity their tastes are so well adapted their minds so thoroughly congenial and their lives so full of active goodness that their union seems to have been one of rare felicity the subject of musicians calls to mind a very singular instance of natural musical capacity that has recently awakened our interest tobio cernesi was a grantaggio or vendor of berries about the streets of florence his superb voice attracted the attention of some lovers of music who after having afforded him a rather hurried and impromptu preparation procured his appearance in opera at one of the minor theatres in florence in spite of his lack of culture and musical skill his voice a pure baritone was so magnificent that he became very popular, and after a few seasons was engaged at the Pagliano. For some time he has completely lost his mind. We have never been able to learn what cause his mental derangement is attributed. He may often be seen wandering about in the streets, fantastically dressed, in zouave trousers and jacket, with a red fez upon his head, singing snatches of opera music, looking wildly about him, and making the most extraordinary gesticulations. His sad-looking wife invariably follows him at a short distance, always keeping him in sight, and hastening to rescue whenever he gets into any difficulty. Strange to say, when he enters the theatre, he becomes perfectly reasonable, that is in regard to all that concerns his vocation he goes through rehearsals with precision enacts his role at night respectably. his talents as an actor are not remarkable sings the music correctly and makes the proper entrances and exits without betraying any eccentricity he is even capable of studying new characters and personating them quite as well as before his misfortune And yet, out of the theater, he is absolutely insane. Here is a singular study open to the psychologist, one which we hope will attract attention and receive investigation. End of chapter 11.